Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thank you for listening. Like everything else now, planning a wedding is very different during the pandemic. Today we'll hear about the Atlanta wedding extravaganza, a virtual expo to help couples plan a celebration during this unusual time. The renowned food writer Harold McGee describes smells as an invisible nimbus of flying molecules. He spent 10 years researching his new book, Nosedive, And later this hour, Harold McGee will tell us about his field guide to the world's smells. Dogs are experts with smells, though now we're going to focus on their other special qualities. The pandemic has been devastating in most ways, but one silver lining has been dogs. Being home with a dog has been salvation for many. And dogs have enjoyed all of these hours with their humans as well. One human I always enjoy talking with and being with is Merritt Davis. Happy New Year and welcome back to City Lights. Hi, Lois. It is so good to be back. And Talking about my favorite topic of all time, next to food and music, ah, let's talk about dogs. That's a winning combination. Food, music, dogs. What else does one need? It's something that we can all agree on. Yeah, well, so where should we start? So I think this came up when you and I were on Twitter together, and I'm pretty active there, because you know we're all spending a lot of time at home. And anytime something negative came up, it was always like dogs bring us together. And then as we saw the television commercial with our new Senator Reverend Warnock, a big centerpiece of his advertising campaign was that he loves puppies. 
And I joked that every political ad moving forward is going to have a dog in the ad. And they were just so effective and that cute little beagle in that commercial, it's hard not to love a puppy. And I know probably people listening right now are like, oh my God, we've just escaped the political ads. Why are you talking about them again, right? Because but dogs transcend partisanship. Yes, yes. and. You know, and I think even now, Lois, in the pandemic, I mean, I know that you have Rex and my dog is Brogy and in the pandemic, the dogs, I'm truly wondering if I feel like my dog at this point is like, can you please leave me alone? <laughs> I had the house to myself every single day. Nobody bothered me. And are, is your dog more tired well, yes, but he is going on 13. He'll have his bar mitzvah in June. <laughs> so it's an interesting thing, but it's brought so much joy to being at home all the time, having pets. And I feel like anytime we got into divisive rhetoric or sadness or anything, people can seem to come around when it comes to dogs. And I don't know about you, uh, but, uh, you know, while we're on the topic of politics real quick, um, and then we can move on from this, you know, we're finally going to have dogs back in the White House. Champ and Major are uh, the two German shepherds that they own. And one of them, uh, Major, is going to be the first rescue dog to ever live in the White House. And I just love that. I do, too. And I think it says a lot. I think adopting a rescue dog in and of itself speaks volumes about people. Well, it is a great thing to do, but you do have to follow through with the research. I work pretty closely with the Atlanta Humane Society. I'm a spokesperson for them. And I think with the Humane Society and so many other of great rescue groups, which we'll talk about, um, they really want to make sure that they're giving you the right match because adopting a dog is adopting a family member. So it's something that you shouldn't do lightly and you should find a breed that matches with your personality and make sure that you have the time, the money, and the love to give to add that family member to your home. You gave a call out on Twitter for people to tell us their favorite pet rescue groups. And you had an amazing response, Mara. Tell us some of them. Gosh, is wasn't that amazing? Because I tagged you in it. And then I think we got almost 100 comments of people instantly, which is just incredible. Um, you know, there's Best Friends, there's Lifeline Animal, there's Released Atlanta, Paws Atlanta, Fur Kids, Mostly Mutts. And then you've got some of the individual groups where I say to people, you know, I'm not saying anything against someone that goes and gets a dog through a breeder, but you can also look to some of the specific breed rescue groups and some of the comments I got were Atlanta Boxer Rescue, Dream Dachshund Rescue, Georgia English Bulldog Rescue. So you can do the research and you can find virtually like every breed uh, because what they'll do is they'll go in in the rescue uh, in the shelters and try to get those breeds 
Um, so it's real specific, but it's, it's, I mean, there's golden rescue. There's just so many of them. And it's just, I love, I love that. Yeah. We had an amazing experience when we adopted Rex from the Atlanta dog squad. Now they mainly rescued and fostered retrievers, but they would welcome other breeds. The people who work for rescue groups are an amazing lot in terms of their devotion and the extent to which they'll go to help an animal, to save an animal. It is so incredible. And you know, people have really fallen on tough times during this pandemic. I mean, the Humane Society has done some incredible things with donating food uh, to people that need it. I've also seen Paws Atlanta do that. Uh, all of them do, um, because you know that's that's we're, uh, there's a lot of struggle out there. So the rescue groups do so much more than just uh, fostering these dogs. It's getting all the care that they need, raising money when they need medical services. So it's just, you know, these people are true angels who go out there and do stuff. Oh, I want to mention fur kids too. I'm not sure I, I had them in my list. I want to make sure they get a shout out. I'm so worried, Lois, because there's so many great rescue groups that I want to make sure that, you know, they all are, are appreciated by us. And we can list these things on our website. So please, if Mara forgot to mention your favorite group, we will have that information for you at wabe.org slash city lights. Now, you also asked about people's favorite dog accounts to follow. <laughs> this I really love because I could look at dog accounts all day long. I don't know about you, Lois. Like, I see a dog video and I'm just there for a good time. I know. So I, I have to keep myself from following because I would be looking at them all day. I know. A couple of famous media people that have good accounts. I want to mention Justin Gray from Channel 2, and he responded back, and it was just so funny. Uh, he said, people should be following Walter Cronkite Gray, uh, the most trusted pup in America and a nose for news, which I thought was very <laughs> funny. A lot of labradoodles. There's a lot of doodle uh, love in Atlanta. People are really into those. One that I love is I've pet that dog. And that's that's not local. It's a, a teenage boy in Iowa who pets dogs. And every day there's like, I pet this is, you know, Gina, the uh, Dachshund. It's just the cutest account. Um, yes. There's another one called Sawny Dog Retreat. And that's such a great follow. I, I love this because it's like a dog boarding place and it's mostly golden retrievers, Labrador retrievers, but they have this incredible way of getting all the dogs to pose for pictures. It's, mm. it's absolutely incredible. And if you love Goldens, um, the golden ratio is really a lot of fun because it's a couple of senior dogs um, and they're really fun to watch. Um, another one that I really liked 
uh, was Canine Mattis and Raider from Alpharetta. These are two police dogs and um, a radio personality and podcaster Cadillac Jack kind of chronicles of them. And I think they're really great. It's great to see those terrific working dogs out there doing their service. There's also Susie Senior Dogs. Um, and I love this organization because they do such a great job of uh, rescuing, you know, our senior dogs. And then, you know, we love them so much. I mean, listen, we could, if you just look at our post uh, that we'll share some of these accounts, there's just so many of them. What are some of your favorites to follow? Well, I adore puppy songs. Matt Hobbs of Dad's Garage. He's a wonderful musician, and he's been with Dad's Garage Improv Theater for a long time. He started doing this during the pandemic, and you cannot suppress a smile, and you'll marvel at how creative he is with his music. So puppy songs on Instagram. And on Twitter... Thoughts of the dog just grabs me. There is something so wise about that beautiful lab and the way he or she speaks and puts periods after one or two words where they don't belong. You know, doggy punctuation is interesting to study in and of itself. But there's a lot of wisdom and thoughts of the dog. Oh, and you know, another clever one is our friend Alton Brown and Elizabeth Ingram have called me Scabigail. And Scabigail is the dog that they rescued from the Atlanta Humane Society. And that dog is the cutest dog, but kind of a grump. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I say that with peace and love, but it's so great. And it's so great to see the dogs that come back from a rough situation and then they become celebrities. Well, thanks to you, we spoke with Alton and Elizabeth early after the pandemic hit for their quarantine kitchen. And Scabigail was prominent, of course. (laughs) And Elizabeth told me that they were somewhere fancy schmancy in New York, Fifth Avenue, Madison Avenue. And some people were about to approach them smiling. And turns out they were followers of Scabigail. Not her humans. That's so great. That's so perfect, actually. Well, okay. They do keep us in our place. Yes, yes. But there's so many good ones. I mean, there's, uh, I I mean, we could really go on for a long time with some of these great accounts, but, you know, you should definitely tweet them to me at Mara Davis and I'll follow every one of them or Mara Davis 2000 on Instagram because Sometimes just getting that quality dog content. I got in late in the game. I mean, I do post some pictures of my dog, Brogy, but, um, you know, I feel like it's overkill. So, you know, so maybe I need to open a separate account. I don't think it's overkill. I love (laughs) seeing that gorgeous face. I would also like to add some reading recommendations for our dog lovers in the WABE audience. And there's a book that just came out talking about 
Oscars approaching. It's called Citizen Canine, and it has all these dogs throughout the decades who were movie stars. Oh, I love it. It's wonderful. On a more serious note, our reporter, Molly Samuel, her mom, the author, Melissa Faye Green, wrote The Underdogs, Children, Dogs, and the Power of Unconditional Love. And this book is quite a testament to the healing power of dogs, of of dogs as companions. It will make you cry. But it will all, it's just so uplifting. Cats on Dogs, John Cats, Dog Days. I could go on. I think that's so great. Those, do- those books sound so amazing. And um, you mentioned cats. Um, and I would do a segment on cats, but they probably wouldn't care. <laughs> oh, I should, I should have clarified, Mara. That was. John Katz, (laughs) K-A-T-Z, who used to be a contributor for NPR a while back, and he would talk about dogs. He he gave up a very successful Madison Avenue advertising career to buy a farm and just live with his dogs and animals, and he writes beautifully about them. So that was John Katz on dogs. See what I mean? The cats don't care. What about movies? Uh, well, I mean, dogs and movies and dogs and television shows, I, you know, I, it, it, there's just so many to choose from. I don't know if you've watched, we've all been binge watching so much in the pandemic, but the one on dogs that really got me recently was the Netflix has the series on dogs and it just really gets you. I mean, so I would recommend that. And of course, Lois, you know what the greatest dog movie of all time is. Do tell. I'm going to go with best in show. <gasps> yes. <laughs> which is, is classic Christopher guest, but best in show. I've watched it again recently, and it still really holds up and is hilarious. It, it is amazing. I also love talking dogs. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, know, I know this seems unnatural, but not to me. And do you remember Look Who's Talking to? Yes. Okay. There's one. Beverly Hills Chihuahua. <laughs> An all-time great. I'm telling you, these these are very worthwhile. Also on Netflix, um, Martin Clunes on dogs is is a fascinating series, and oh, there's just so much richness we derive from these glorious canine companions. They are the noble species. Oh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I there have been a lot of dark days um, over the past, I can't even believe I'm gonna say 10 months. 
but having my dog and having the routine of walking the dog and, and having that loving companion there has is really saved us. And then we, you know, I want to get another one. My husband is stopping me from this, but um, my vet, Dr. Will Draper from the Village Vets has often said to me, uh, don't ask your family, just come <laughs> home with the dog. That's right. Who could resist? Yes. All right, Merritt Davis, it is always a joy talking food, music, movies, canines. Please come back soon. I will be back anytime, Lois. You know you're my favorite. For a full list of Merritt Davis's dog-related recommendations, check out our website at wabe.org slash City Lights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R I C H M O N T.edu. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Planning a wedding looks very different in the age of COVID-19. The Atlanta Wedding Extravaganza is offering a virtual expo at the end of this month to showcase some of Atlanta's best vendors and help guide couples through this uncertain time. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with Shelley Dance, the producer of the Expo, about what's in store. Shelley, the last time we spoke was in July when the bridal extravaganza of Atlanta transitioned to a week-long virtual offering. How did it end up going? Oh, well, it went fabulous, actually. I was so excited to see this virtual experience come to life. We um, you know, are so used to having this big, beautiful live bridal show that has a thousand people and to figure out how to transition it to a virtual show took some maneuvering, but the brides were happy. They got to meet a ton of vendors and win a lot of prizes. And now we're going to do it all again in January and, and add some new elements to it. Yeah. And the name has changed from Atlanta Bridal Extravaganza to Atlanta Wedding Extravaganza. Why was that decided? That's, that's right. Yes, it was Bridal Extravaganza of Atlanta for many years. And we have just changed the name to Atlanta Wedding Extravaganza in order to be more inclusive for all engaged couples. So we wanted to change, get rid of bridal, make it wedding. So it works for everybody. And so everything that everyone came to know and love from bridal extravaganza has remained the same. Just wanted to make sure that everybody felt included with changing the name to Atlanta wedding extravaganza. 
And speaking of inclusivity, are most of the vendors, is that kind of like a staple or a cornerstone of who they are, of their inclusivity and who they provide their services to? Oh, yes. This is a wonderful group of vendors. Everyone is, that is not even a discussion. I mean, it is definitely something that all of our vendors are open to working with anybody and want to work with anyone. They're so eager to bring weddings to these Atlanta families. Mm -hmm. Now you said that there's the virtual wedding expo at the end of this month. How is this one going to differ from that of this past July's? So a lot of it is the same. And for a lot of these brides and grooms that are listening out there that may not know what it is, I'll kind of give you the short little description so people can understand what it looks like. Because the whole difference between the live interactive show and turning it to virtual, we really wanted to make sure it just didn't feel like a vendor directory. And so we really wanted it to still feel fun and interactive. And I think that's really what happened in July and what we're going to be doing in January. We really want people to get inspired and get new ideas. It all starts with a curbside pickup on the first day so they can still get food, cake samples and flowers and gifts from vendors, you know, and they just do it in a nice drive-through of their cars. So a lot of the things that they love about a wedding show can still happen in the virtual show. And that's what, and that's how it all kicks off. I saw that there will be some returning highlights such as interactive video chats with wedding experts and live music and even door prizes along with honeymoon giveaways. Are there a new set of musicians and vendors at this year's event or is it about the same as last year's? Yes, there's a bunch of new vendors and a lot of new cool venues and wedding planners, every category you want planners, DJs, photographers. Um, So if somebody attended in the summer, there's a whole new crop of vendors that are attending. Some are the same with some new ideas and some new vendors. I'm really excited that we get to bring so many vendors together with these couples who might not otherwise know about them. So you mentioned the live entertainment. Every night, they can check out a different DJ or entertainer that they may want for their show, which is super fun. And then following the entertainment, the there's a vendor panel giving them advice on different topics. You know, it might be on bringing their Pinterest boards to life or planning a honeymoon or organizing your wedding plans. We're even doing a fun vendor speed dating. I, I think I think they thought they were done with dating, but now we're doing <laughs> vendor speed dating um, to to get to meet a whole bunch of vendors all on one night. And then we're gonna kick. Um, have a grand finale on the last night. This is something new that we didn't do in the July show. We're actually filming a beautiful live fashion show. We're actually filming it this week at the Fox Theater and the all the virtual guests will get to see this beautiful fashion show, get all these ideas. And then we're going to have a Zoom Q&A session with those fashion show vendors following the show so they can get all the information on the beautiful gowns and tuxedos and the decor and everything that they saw in the show. Are the vendors mostly Atlanta-based that are going to be showcasing the dresses in the show? Yes. Belle Fiore Bridal and Savvy Formerwell are the main sponsors for the fashion show and the bridal salon is located here in town. Going back to the vendors, what is the selection process like for Atlanta Wedding Extravaganza when you guys are selecting what vendors or musicians you guys want to have at the expo? 
it's really a relationship that I've built with these vendors over the years that we've been running these shows. The vendors are all established vendors in the Atlanta community that have so much experience. And what I love is that during this crazy pandemic time we're living in, they have come up with so many fun, unique, different ideas that you know maybe they might not have come up with if we weren't stuck in, stuck in our houses during all this time. And so I think that for these brides and grooms to hear some of these new ideas that they've come up with is gonna be something really helpful for these couples. I think they're gonna be really happy with what, what they, the information they get out of it. We saw this summer that the couples that experienced the bridal show came away with so much good information. Not to mention, we haven't talked about every one of them offers a deal or a discount that is available during the show and they all have a giveaway. So in addition to, we have a honeymoon giveaway and an ultimate wedding giveaway of cakes and photography and DJs and some big prizes. Every vendor in the show is giving away a prize. So there's a lot that the brides and grooms can win just by attending the, the virtual show. For the honeymoon giveaway, I know that there are some travel restrictions currently. Are these places yeah. in the U.S. or where people from the U.S. Well, can travel? Yes. Well, there's, you do, they do not need to book anything right now. This is, it, this is, can be for the future. It definitely will be when it's safe to go. But the honeymoon is for the Ritz Carlton in Aruba or the Ritz Carlton in St. Thomas. So they get to choose between one of those two fabulous locations for their trip. That sounds amazing. Yes. Due to the pandemic, many of those in the wedding industry or getting married last year had to opt for more smaller, intimate wedding ceremonies. Will vendors change their offerings or wedding packages for those who want to opt for these intimate weddings? Yes, that is one of the things that they have really worked out a lot of good information on that you can, whether it's a small wedding or a traditional wedding, or you want to wait to have the big wedding, there's these vendors have packages for you in any different arrangement you want to have your wedding. And there's a lot of really great wedding planners that are a part of this show. And they have really bent over backwards during this time on learning how to make a million changes to make their weddings work during this pandemic. Do you predict a surge of weddings this year since many had to postpone them from last year? Yes, definitely. In addition to the fact that they say that during December, it's one of the busiest months to get engaged. So we expect a lot of brides, new brides coming in. There are so many brides that had to postpone to 21. So one of the things that these new brides are really going to need to do is book their dates and find their vendors and be more open to different days because so many of the 21 dates have been taken up by 2020 brides. So being flexible and being creative on not every wedding is on the same night of the week or whatever, however they wanna go about it, talking to these vendors and being flexible is gonna be important if they want to get married in 2021. Right, maybe not opting for the Friday or Saturday evening ceremony, mm -hmm. but I've heard of some people doing a Thursday, you know? That's right, that's right. Yes, or Sunday or days or nights. Just I think that being flexible, you know, if you're set on a certain time of year or a certain date is gonna be important. Right. What are some of the safety regulations in place for the in-person fashion show at the Fox? 
we have been really bending over backwards to make sure to try to do this in the safest way possible. We have a very limited audience coming to the Fox. We're, set, we're doing social distancing seating. We have masks for everyone. We've actually created some beautiful masks. That's, you know, I guess one of the new uh, staples of weddings now is beautiful <laughs> masks. Right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the food even is being prepared in, um, you know, so they're not passing the hors d'oeuvres, but when they go to get the food, it's in individual packaging, beautiful packaging. You know, I think there's all kinds of ways that you can do. The caterers have come up with all kinds of beautiful ways to serve food now to keep it smart. <laughs> so the Fox, they know how to do this in the safest way possible. And I feel very comfortable about how we're doing the fashion show. What are some of the predictions for this year's wedding trends? Do you know some of the dress styles or colors or decor that people are opting for this year? Oh, gosh. You know, they're really all over the board. Um, some, some people are talking about bringing in more of the outdoors in with tenting and greenery. And some people are talking about mismatched tables where, you know, everything is not the same, where it might be different kinds of chairs or unique seating options or, or talking about welcome boxes instead of welcome back. I mean, there's all different kinds of trends that are all, you know, there's also, especially since people are been sitting in loungewear for so long, I think that it's going to get even dressier uh, <laughs> when, once we um, get back to getting out to these parties because people are so eager to get out of their yoga pants. Yep. <laughs> so I think that's going to be a trend as well. Yeah. More glam. I can understand that. <laughs> that's right. And also the individual plating of party foods, like we were talking about, I think that that's going to be something that continues now that people have seen some new ways to, to do the food. How do you feel that the pandemic has changed the way couples plan their wedding ceremony? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think that that you know, between Instagram and Pinterest, you know, that's always been popular, getting even more popular, obviously, for people planning weddings. But even when that was before the pandemic, it helped to be able to connect. You know, that's why wedding shows were always so much fun was to be able to check the chemistry and see their work and sample items. And so I think that the pandemic has forced people to have to do a lot of that through Zoom or, you know, being able to pick up cake tastings and do a lot of things that they may not have thought they could do, but you can still check the chemistry and sample items and do all these things in a safe way during this time. And some of those things may stick, you know, if it's not so easy, you know, if you want your mother to be a part of an appointment and she lives out of town, you can still do it and have her, you know, zoom in on the appointment. So I think some of those things will make wedding planning a, a little easier for some people. But obviously, everyone can't wait to get back together and be in person. But I think some of those ideas will stick. Shelley Dance, producer of the Atlanta Wedding Extravaganza, speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. The virtual expo begins January 23rd and runs through the 29th. More information will appear on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Harold McGee is renowned for his writing on the science of food and cooking. His first book, 
on food and cooking has been described as the single best source book for anyone who has even the faintest interest in food. McGee's achievements include a James Beard Award, Bon Appetit Food Writer of the Year, and he has been listed among the Time 100, an annual list of the world's most influential people. Harold McGee's new book is Nosedive, a field guide to the world's smells. Harold McGee, welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's wonderful to be here. I read that you spent 10 years working on Nosedive, and your research is evident in the scope of the book. Why did you want to write about smells? <laughs> Good question. Well, for 30 or 40 years now, I've been writing mostly about food and drink and the science of cooking. To me, the most interesting thing about food and cooking is um, flavor, the sensory experience that makes it such a pleasure to eat and drink. And so I was intending to write a book about flavor. Flavor consists of uh, taste on the tongue and smell in the nose. And the, the more I learned about smell, the more fascinated I got and the more I wondered about not just the smells of food and drink, but the smells of the world around me. And so I ended up taking a detour that lasted 10 years and uh, uh, wrote about the, the smells of everything in the world that I could think of. And in the cosmos. I mean, not just our world. That's right. I started out my life very interested in astronomy and actually studied it for a few years. So when I began to think about the smells of the world, eventually it occurred to me to ask the question, uh, when was it in the development of the cosmos that things that we would recognize uh, on Earth today began to be created in the cosmos at large? And so I found that radio astronomers were able to detect the presence of very particular molecules billions and billions of light years away. And they take a census. Every couple of years, they list the molecules that have been found in outer space. To date, they've found about 200. And among them are the molecules that to us would smell like eggs mm -hmm. and vinegar and even fruits. Hmm. You describe smells as an invisible nimbus of flying molecules. How do they enter our sensory system? Well, for something to have a smell, because of course we detect smells in the air, it has to be a tiny particle of the things around us, molecules, individual molecules that escape those things and fly through the air where we can breathe them in. And once we breathe them in and they get up into the upper reaches of our nose, we have receptors up there to let us know that we have detected the presence of these molecules. So those receptors will trigger a signal that then goes into our brain and our brain tries to make sense of the information that it's getting and then presents us with a, a perception of the smell of that particular thing. Now, I love when you write that you became a smell explorer. 
and and you encourage readers to become smell explorers. What made you decide to go beyond the smells associated with food? Well, what really got me interested in the smells of the rest of the world were those moments when I was eating and thinking about smells, thinking about flavors, those moments when uh, particular foods seem to echo other things, other other foods, and even other things that aren't edible. So Parmesan cheese, for example, is old cow's milk, a year or two old, <laughs> been sitting around maturing. It can sometimes have the smell of a ripe pineapple. So what does an old vat of cow's milk have in common with a tropical fruit? <laughs> And then some wines are often said to smell like uh, or have an aroma reminiscent of a sweaty saddle (laughs) or the soil or the ocean or flowers. None of these things are things that we would want to put in our mouths, but they're somehow part of the experience of food and drink. So that's what got me to pay attention, not just to the the aromas of food and drink, but to the smells of the rest of the world that they echo. You even invented a word for the world of smells. Please, Harold McGee, tell us what you have added to our language. <laughs> well, uh, I wanted a word to describe the world of smells, the universe of smells, uh, all the possibilities that are out there for us to explore. And so I came up with the word osmocosm. Osme is uh, from a Greek root meaning to smell, and cosm, of course, the the cosmos. And I really like the, the kind of internal rhyme there, osmocosm. So that's what I call the world of smells. Oh, and clearly you have that sensory gift with the ear as well, because osmocosm just has a lilt to it. Would you explain how smells are compared to a musical chord? Yes, it it turns out, you know, when we think, for example, of the smell of caramel, we think that it's a unitary thing, that there must be molecules of caramel that we're smelling. But in fact, smells are much more like chords in music. They're made up of individual notes, the individual molecules that combine in our brain, actually, are the flavor, smell, these are perceptions that are created in our brains from these composite sensations. So smell seems to be just a note, but in fact, it's a complex chord made up of many different notes. So those are the notes that we're reading about on wine labels or in reviews. And I guess it turns into a melody, if you will, when you start building on the individual notes and the chords become multiple. That's right. And uh, something that we tend not to think so much about when it comes to flavors, but in fact is uh, as true there as in music, is that flavors have lifetimes. They're not just one instant uh, snapshot, they actually evolve over time as we savor something. And in the case of wines, for example, many of those individual notes that wine critics will often detect in wines 
are not things that you get all at once. But if you sip and pay attention and and then swallow and see what's left in your mouth, what, what aromas are left, and then take a second sip, and then another one maybe 20 minutes later, the flavor evolves. And that's, for me, one of the great pleasures of uh, eating and drinking is not so much uh, thinking of foods and drinks as having one single flavor, but enjoying how those flavors develop over time and uh, during the course of a meal. Hmm. The complexity requires patience to fully appreciate. Before I began reading Nosedive, I thought about a very personal association with smell. My mother passed away 10 years ago, and I still have a bottle of fragrance she often wore, which I will occasionally sniff. And the connection to her is profound. Will you talk about how smell evokes memory and emotion? Well, it turns out that uh, the sense of smell compared to our other senses is much more directly connected to the emotional part of our brain, the part of our brain that responds not with thoughts, but with feelings. So it turns out that when we smell something that is somehow connected with important emotional experiences in our past, it's very good at evoking those moments in the past and the people and situations associated with them. And psychologists have actually studied this and they call it olfactory comfort. People will actually seek out things in the world that remind them of those comforting relationships and experiences and situations. And that'll often take the form, for example, if a couple is separated, that uh, one member of that couple will open the, the dresser drawer and take out an item of clothing and just inhale through it to try and get the presence of that missing partner back into their life momentarily. You provide smell tables in each chapter. Please talk about the structure of the book. Well, I subtitled the book A Field Guide to the World's Smells. And I really did have in mind a birder's guide or a guide to butterflies, books that help you identify what it is that you're experiencing, what you're seeing or hearing. So I wanted to do that kind of thing for smells. Now, of course, smells are invisible. <laughs> so I, I couldn't have uh, photographs to help you identify things. But what I could do is provide tables that give you the components of a given smell and then the molecules that are responsible for those component smells. And I included the molecules not to say that science is the most important thing about this, but rather to indicate that uh, unlike the tasting notes of a, a wine critic, for example, the component smells are objective. These are molecules and component smells that have been found by chemists to be present in these many different materials in the world. And so if you're curious about knowing exactly why it is that there's a particular note, you can see which molecule is responsible, and then the text will often explain what those molecules are doing there. 
You take us through familiar smells, such as freshly cut grass, which is so appealing to many of us who enjoy walking outdoors, the aroma of freshly baked bread, coffee, and of course, delicious chocolate. You write about plant smells, animals, other humans, and ourselves. Have you had any feedback about the range of your research into smells that one wouldn't think you would have delved into? <laughs> yes. Well, people are surprised to find the, the smells of the human body covered in as much detail as the smells of flowers and uh, and chocolate and coffee. Yeah, I was uh, wondering about your having to sniff dirty laundry or, you know, just trying to picture you doing this, Harold. Well, and of course, uh, when I was writing the book, I, I was going and sniffing actively at things that are not so nice. But the reason I included them in the book was because nice or not so nice, these are things that we encounter all the time. And we may not like encountering them, but I think even so, it's interesting to know what they're doing there. Why do these things smell the way they do? And in some cases, knowing why they smell the way they do helps you uh, ameliorate <laughs> those smells. So, for example, I think um, most of us have encountered the, the kind of sour, unpleasant smell of a sponge in the kitchen that's been sitting on the counter for a few weeks and never had a chance to completely dry out. And so it turns out that microbes are living inside in all those little nooks and crannies and generating these very unpleasant molecules, which we pick up because our nose is there to inform us about what's around us and what's good and what's not so good. And it turns out that knowing which molecules are responsible for that sour smell gives you a pretty clear idea of how to deal with those smells, how to make them go away. And so knowing what's there, pleasant or unpleasant, can make our lives both more interesting, but also more pleasant. Ah, for the greater good. How have technology and commerce manipulated our sense of smell or our expectations of smell? So the industry writ large uh, has figured out how to synthesize the molecules of smell in vast quantities by the ton very, very cheaply. And so instead of, uh, for example, a, a perfume being very expensive because the ingredients are these rare materials from different parts of the world, industrial chemists have figured out how to make the, the molecules that provide most of the, the smells of these things, and then they can make perfumes very, very cheaply. And that's kind of spilled over into our everyday lives where we have air fresheners of all kinds to spray around our house or to add to our furniture polish or to spray in our cars. So the osmocosm that we wander through every day is often impoverished, first of all, by getting rid of lots of smells uh, and then by covering over what smells are there with these um, kind of industrial 
simplifications or cartoons of what smells really are. In the preface to this book, you explain how your first taste of grouse, a game bird, was transformative. And that experience led you down this 10-year journey through the science and study of smells. The concluding chapter is titled, My Second Grouse. How has this decade of exploration influenced your sensory experience of life? Taking 10 years of paying close attention to smells that, uh, that I'd never paid attention to before has turned me into, I think, a smell explorer forever. <laughs> because I think once you get in the habit of noticing these things and noticing the connections, it just becomes another aspect that enriches your life. You know, it's, it's a bit like learning about uh, classical music or about jazz or about painting. Uh, no matter where you are, you take that with you. And when there's a chance to appreciate uh, a snatch of music or uh, a painting or a particular smell, you do stop and notice and, uh, and it registers. Author Harold McGee, his new book is Nosedive, a field guide to the world's smells. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Our producers are Summer Evans and Brian McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you would follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Listen to past interviews and shows from our archives at wabe.org slash City Lights. Thank you for listening to 90.1 W-A-B-E. At Lattice Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in depth, long form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.